All right, so this morning we're going to be continuing our study uh, in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We are currently uh, focused on the covenant, move this back, which takes up chapters 7 all the way to chapter 20. So it's a major part of our confession. Last week, and really the uh, last couple weeks, um, we were looking at the covenant defined, and this week we're going to be looking at chapter 8, which is the covenant servant, so of Christ the mediator. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're here this morning to study um, just one of the greatest uh, doctrines of the Christian faith, an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, the mediator of the covenant of grace. Father, as we study this, God, we pray that this would not just be a study about Christ, but Lord, that you would use this to grow us, not in our knowledge simply of who Christ is, but our knowledge of him personally, covenantally, or that we would see our Savior as beautiful, sufficient, holy, and true and good for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, of Christ the Mediator. So today we are going to be looking at the person of Christ. Now next week, we're going to look at the work of Christ, right? But this week, we are looking at the person. Uh, You'll notice, usually when we've taught this, we've gone through, right, so there's ten chapters, ten paragraphs in this chapter. Usually we've gone through, right, so chapter one through five, and then six through ten, right? Um, This this chapter is not organized um, in that way, right? Where we could just address the person of Christ in paragraphs 1 through 5, and then his work in 6 through 10, right? So the reason they did that is actually pretty important. You cannot separate the work of Christ from the person of Christ. We're going to see that today, um, and especially next week as we get into the work of Christ. But Uh, Horton says that any undermining of the person of Christ leads to an undermining of his work. Right? If you deny, for instance, that Christ is divine, what does that say about the work that is accomplished? We're going to look at that today. And so our chapter sort of goes back and forth between his work and his person. Right? And that's teaching us something about why we should keep those together. But for teaching's sake... You know, it's simpler, it's easier for us to understand if we compartmentalize these things. Although we shouldn't theologically, for teaching's sake, it is um, easier to sort of understand them from this perspective. Before we get started, though, in who Christ is, I thought I'd ask you, how are we Christians today tempted to fashion an unbiblical or a false Christ? Okay, so we're about to talk about who Christ is. How are we tempted to view him as less than who he is revealed in Scripture? Yeah, go ahead. Say again. Yeah, that's good. So focusing on his love and not his justice, right? You see this often in more liberal circles, right, where... Uh, the person of Christ is seen as just all loving, right? He's just, he's just a, a great expression of God's love, but we don't really see, or, or they don't 
tend to focus on the, the justice of Christ, right? I'm not a big fan of him flipping tables over, right, in the temple. That's a, that's a great point. Any other ways? About how about uh, among all the, the, the false religions or the cults that have not only a different view of him, but even an atheist or just a uh, run-of-the-mill pagan would have, um, like we would want to tell them that he is a sovereign Lord of glory, mm-hmm. who is the yeah. only way that right. you can be saved or right. have peace with God, and that you not only must give him all of your allegiance, but your worship and adoration and praise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's good. You see that rampant in our culture. Yeah. Um, just a, a lesser Christ. Yeah. Um, so that's that's good. Um, yeah, Dick. As uh, the future King Charles says, our religion is a God. Yeah, yeah. Um, we see that as well in our culture, um, where you know. Uh, oh, well, you know, all religions lead to God, so they don't really view Christ as an exclusive, right? That the, he, he alone is mediator between God and man. But, you know, oh, you, can, you can make your way up to God. You just, you know, have this other understanding. It's really good. Okay, so paragraph one of chapter eight takes a look back. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, and heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people, to be his seed and to be, with him, uh, to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, and sanctified. If you remember, we just looked at chapter 7, uh, paragraph 3, and in that paragraph we read that the new covenant is founded in that eternal covenant transaction, right? That was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And so that is what is being referenced here, that I bolded sort of right there in the middle of this paragraph. This chapter begins. By setting that context, who is Christ as the mediator between God and man? Well, he is the servant of the covenant of redemption. So, um, J.B. Fesco's really great book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. Uh, If you want any more information on this, I highly suggest that. Uh, It's a little technical in places, but it's very, very biblical. I mean, he spends many chapters just exegeting scripture, right? And I'm only going to be able to kind of touch down really quick on this doctrine and move on. Um, He spends a lot of time on the history and the exegesis there. But notice our confession. According to the covenant made between them both, Christ mediates the covenant of grace according to the covenant made within the Trinity. Fesco defines this covenant, the covenant of redemption, also known as the Pactum Salutis, as the pre-temporal, okay, before time, Intra-Trinitarian, so it's within the Trinity, agreement, that is a covenant, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to plan and execute the redemption of the elect. It's a wonderful definition. So it is from all eternity, right, within the Trinity, a covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to plan and execute the redemption of the elect. So where do we see this in Scripture? Again, I'm only able to touch on this. There are many passages that are important to this doctrine, but I can't 
handle all of them. We can't talk about all of them this morning. Uh, John 17 is extremely important for this. Uh, We read in verse 4. So John 17 is the high priestly prayer, right? It's the son praying to the father. So if we're going to say that there is some sort of covenant within the Trinity, when the son is praying to the father, that's a pretty important prayer for us to look at, right? It's a pretty pretty important passage for us to look at. And in verse 4, Christ says to the father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the Son has accomplished work given to him by the Father. That's covenant stipulations. Right? Then we read in verse 5. And now, so on the basis of that completed work, right, on the basis of that work, now Christ makes a request. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So on the, on the basis of Christ fulfilling stipulations, commands of the Father, he makes a request. He appeals to a covenant promise. So what did the Father promise? Again, we see verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Titus 1, 1 through 3 is important for this as well. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Who did God promise the salvation of the elect? Who did he promise that to before the ages began? Who else is there? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll get into that as well. That the Holy Spirit is, is a party within the covenant of redemption as well. That's a good point. So how do we know that this is a covenant, though? Right? I mean, couldn't we just say, okay, well, we see that the Trinity works in redemption and creation. There's no real need to believe that there is a covenant here. We don't really find covenant language so far within this context. Well, Psalm 110 is another very important passage. Again, there are many important passages. Psalm 2, Zechariah 6, 13. You know, I had to call out Zechariah there. Um, But Psalm 110 is is very important here. We read in verse 1 of Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, this is David writing, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord says to my Lord, God says to my Lord, who is David's Lord? In fact, Jesus interprets this verse for us in Matthew 22. And he says, this is the Father speaking to the Son. It is an intra-Trinitarian conversation about the kingly office of Christ. Until I make your enemies, your footstool, sit at my right hand. And then in verse 4 of Psalm 110... We read, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice, we're now speaking of a priestly office. Right? The important word here is sworn. This is covenant language. This is oath-making. Every Old Testament Israelite 
would have read that verse and read covenant oath. There's a swearing here. And so here we do see covenant language. Hebrews 7, 20 through 22 quotes this, right? Quotes this psalm, quotes this verse here, and then says this, that is the sworn oath, the oath that the Father made to the Son, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, which is exactly what our confession says. So the mediation of the covenant of grace is founded, according to Hebrews, interpretation of Psalm 110, on the covenant, the swearing, the oath that the Father made to the Son. This is one of the passages, one of them, in which we do see covenant language between the Father and the Son. Pastor Nathan? Distinguishes the new covenant yeah. from the old covenant yeah. or from any of the earthly covenants right. in the Old Testament, which is the foundation of Baptist covenant, covenant theology, theology as opposed to Presbyterian covenant theology. Right. That verse, that idea that the covenant of redemption is the basis for the new covenant. Yep. Therefore, it is a redemptive covenant, spiritually, heavenly, eternal, everlasting covenant. Yeah. Now, we would say that the, the covenants throughout the Old Testament, uh, they picture to us, right, things of that new covenant, right? They typify things of that new covenant, even the covenantal nature of the covenant of redemption, but they aren't grounded in that covenant, right? And that's the difference. And if they are, then you do have the Presbyterian system across the board. But then you also imply that those Old Testament covenants must be redemptive. Really good point. Okay, so so what, right? Why is this important? Uh, and I have some answers here, but I want to hear what you guys think. Why is this important? Why bring this up? Why, uh, you know, of course we, we know because Scripture teaches this, right? So we want to stay true to the Word of God. What about you know, our daily life? How does, this, how does this help us, impact us, comfort us, those sorts of things? Jacob? Yeah, that's good. So the, the, your assurance that you will be saved even to the end, right, is that the Father has promised the Son you. So it's an intertrinitarian promise. Pastor Nathan? Yeah, uh, exactly what Jacob said is what we saw this past Wednesday in our Wednesday night Bible study. Mm-hmm. How Peter, the book of which Peter opens with just the triune nature of our salvation is the ground of our assurance. Yeah. And the Father is selecting and the Son securing and the Spirit applying. Yeah. And uh, how that is exactly that, that gives us confidence yeah. that our salvation is His plan, His doing, our own. Absolutely. I mean, both of these. We've just talked about both of these. That Jesus accomplishes our redemption because the Father promised him a people, and that the Spirit applies that redemption from beginning to end, from conversion to glory, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made a covenant. Right? I'm actually, my very last paper for seminary I'm writing right now, it's for marriage and family counseling, uh, and my paper is on this document. 
the reason why, and it's just kind of an example I'm using right now to show you how practical this is. Um, all of time is ordered to this end, right? So all of time is ordered to the end that the father would present a bride to the son. That, that the son fulfilled the covenant stipulations and therefore the father will reward at the end of time the son with the spotless bride. So when your Christian friends, when your Christian spouse, when your Christian parents, when within the church we hurt one another, right? Nothing cultivates patience, kindness, and grace greater than remembering this doctrine. And knowing that before they hurt you, before the ages began, the Father had promised them to the Son. And so at the end of the ages, you and that person, that Christian who has hurt you, will stand as the spotless bride, as the reward to Christ for his accomplishment of the covenant. And so having that eschatological, if you will, perspective of one another that, yes, they've hurt me, but one day we are going to stand before Christ as the spotless bride. And so seeing them now in light of that day um, helps us, Rob. In light of all those things, I think it's also really encouraging to consider evangelism in light of these things that yeah. God's eternal plan mm -hmm. is bringing about his purposes yeah. in this world and that it should uh, push down any fears that we yeah. have about proclaiming the gospel yeah. because God is going to save people yeah, that's great. through the message of Christ right. and how wonderful that is. Yeah, absolutely. How, how bold that should make us right. and, and confident yeah. whether they reject it or whether they accept it. Right. That's great. A confidence in our evangelism because we know that we are simply the means, right? The proclamation of the gospel is simply the means by which they come. But before the foundations of the world, those people were already promised to the Son. And so God will save them, right? And that's, that's, that's a great point. Okay. Uh, any questions so far on that current redemption? Okay. Paragraph two, the identity of the mediator. You'll notice what I've bolded here. Uh, the first thing we see in this paragraph is his divinity, right? The son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the father's glory and one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did when the fullness of time was complete. So that's the divinity. Humanity, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. So we have his divinity, right, then his humanity, and now, how are those two natures in one person? How do we talk about these two natures in one person? So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now again, I wish I could spend a lot of time on this. I can't. Uh, but we did just do the early church, the creeds, right? Not too long ago. Uh, and almost every week, 
we were addressing something about this paragraph, which is important for me to note here because what I want to point out here on the presentation is how biblical these statements are, but you cannot read this chapter apart from the creeds of the early church. I mean, they are taking language directly from the early church creeds. Our, what it means to be Reformed Baptist is not this in a vacuum sort of this new thing that's taking place, but rather someone who's retrieving and recovering, right, creedal orthodoxy, so to say, going back to the early church and those uh, creeds and confessions. This is very important for us to, to notice here. So first we see regarding his divinity, his personal identity, the creeds, uh, the confession says the son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. Um, of course, we can see this, especially throughout John's gospel, but in particular, John 1, almost everything in this paragraph can be surmised from John 1. Uh, it's such a great passage. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? But also his divine nature, very and eternal God, brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And all things were made through him, John says. You see his Trinitarian work. He made the world and who upholds and governs all things he has made. This is a very high statement of Christ's divinity here. So again, I can't spend too much time on that. I feel like I don't really need to argue for the divinity of Christ here, especially since we spent you know, weeks and weeks in the early church and the creeds. Uh, so my question to you is, why must we believe that the mediator of the covenant of grace is God? Why must we believe that he's God? What happens if we don't? Ethan. Yeah, in his image. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right, and we see that Christ is the image of God. That's a great point. In order to have a spotless substitute, yep. you have to have a perfect being. Absolutely. And therefore, Jesus being not in his act of obedience is what we needed to fulfill what was needed for the first. That's it. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's that's I mean, that is that is it. Uh, so the perfect obedience, the sacrifice, and resurrection satisfies God's justice on our behalf, and we're going to look at all of that next week in the rest of chapter eight. Eileen. Yeah. Right. That's good. So Hebrews makes that case that because the priests in the Old Testament were not perfect. They continually had to offer sacrifice for their own sins, right? But Christ being perfect, being God, sacrificed and then sat down, so to say, right at the right hand of the Father. That's great. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so all of that is really great. That's my first point. Secondly, as God, he fully 
secures our redemption. That is, he sends the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. That's chapter 10 of our confession. To justify us, chapter 11. Adopt, chapter 12. Sanctify, chapter 13. Grant us faith, repentance, good works, and assurance, chapters 14 through 18. To build the church, right? He's the king and reigns over the church as God through the means of grace, chapters 26 to 30, and to bring us to glory, chapters 31 to 32. All of our confession rests on this chapter. It's interesting, our confession uh, uses the noun for God, I think it's 175 times, right? It uses the name of, it references Jesus Christ in some form or manner, 154 Okay, before this, he is called the Son, right? Before this chapter, he's called the Son. Here in chapter 8, we are introduced to Christ, the mediator. And then from this point forward, 74 times Christ is called Christ in our confession. This lays the groundwork for how we understand every single time that he is referenced throughout our confession. The work of our confession throughout this. Again, I want to highlight here just quickly um, that it is the Spirit, right? The Spirit who sanctifies us um, and applies this redemption. That's the Spirit's work uh, in the covenant of redemption. But He is sent by the Son, right? And the Son ascends as Lord, sending the Spirit. Okay, so His humanity. Our confession also addresses this. First, it begins with his addition. The Son of God did take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it. I really want to get into a lot of this, but I can't. But in particular, um, I want to highlight the language here that he took upon himself man's nature. Right? Philippians 2, 6-8 is very key for this. Though he was in the form of God, he, that is Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant. Now many today in evangelical circles and outside of evangelical circles teach that Christ, what it means for him to empty himself or that he didn't see equality with God a thing to be grasped, right, is that he let go of it. He didn't hold on to it. He let go of it and so he emptied himself of divinity, right? He, he foregoes some divine attributes. It's canonic Christology. It's, it's to be honest, it's terrible, um, that's false. It's false, right? It's false. <laughs> and so everyone knows that is false. Um, what Paul means here, that he didn't see it to be a thing to be grasped, is that he already has it. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to grow for it. He doesn't have to grasp for it. It's already his. Equality with God remains his in the incarnation. And so what it means for Christ to empty himself is not that he empties himself of some divinity or attribute of the, of the divine, but rather that he takes on, he adds to, he assumes human nature. This is important because we believe that Christ is God. And God does not change. He's not made of parts where he can just sort of, I'm going to let go of this thing and then this thing. No. If that were true, if God could change, your sin gives him every reason to do so. And so if Christ has to empty himself of something of divinity to be man, you ruin our assurance. You ruin the gospel. Massively important. So I love our confession. He took upon himself the nature of man. Can you elaborate why you're in 
you describe uh, why you're using that? Yeah, uh, so we're going to get into why he must be, are you, are you talking about why he must be human? Well, the, the nature aspect, that, yeah, not just, not just like flesh, like. Yeah, okay, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, okay, so secondly, his impeccability. He was yet without sin, our confession says. Uh, Pastor Nathan? Yeah, sorry. Could you talk just for a second, maybe you're going to get there, but uh, about subordination? Yeah. Okay, so. To, you know, uh, eternal functional subordination yeah. or eternal subordination of the Son, Yeah. And how they have um, appealed to this verse and why right. Yeah. So, uh, eternal subordination of the Son is the idea, false, again, false idea, uh, that the Son um, uh, submits to the Father within the Trinity, right? That the, fa- that the Son submits to the Father uh, within the Trinity. And so what they, when they read passages like this and passages throughout the New Testament where the Son submits to the Father, right, I came to do the will of the Father, um, they read that back into the Trinity, right? We would say no, no. Christ remains who he is, okay, as God, right? But in his human nature, in the economy of redemption, he submits to the Father, right? So we, we, we cannot believe, we do not believe, we cannot teach that Christ, the Son of God, within the Trinity, submits to the Father. Because then again, you have unequal, right? You have a hierarchy within the Trinity, a difference of glory within the Trinity. Jason? I may be wrong in this, um, uh, but in my experience, they're driving at that because of gender issues. They see in the culture that, uh, you know, feminism, they want to combat feminism, so they want to say that Christ submits to the Father within the essence of the Trinity, and therefore women must submit to men as essential to their nature, just as the Son submits to the Father. That's one of the reasons that we say no. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, co-equal, co-eternal. Absolutely. Again, we go back to the creeds. Uh, The church has always confessed there is no hierarchy within the Trinity. They are equal. They are all God. Uh, What do I mean by impeccability? Jacob. Absolutely. And so we see kind of almost a dysfunction where the yep. um, Father has to like twist the arm of Jesus or something to get him to come down. Uh, so it really contradicts the covenant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really good too. Okay, so impeccability is not just the doctrine that Christ didn't sin, right? But that he was unable to sin. Okay, that's what we mean by his impeccability. So his two natures, as we'll see, are united to... Are, you not, are, are in one person, right? His two natures are in one person. So we can't say that Jesus was able to sin. Jesus is God, right? 
Jesus is not able to sin. Also, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as God, he doesn't change. But a holiness that is able to falter is a holiness that has the potential to change. And we can't even say that God has the potential to change. Right? This is important for even our doctrine of God. Finally, his conception being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, made of a woman. So he receives his human nature. Uh, The Westminster Confession says he's of the substance of Mary. He receives his human nature from Mary. Now, our confession took that out and really expanded on it. Um, Our confession really expands on it to kind of nail down, you know, that he does receive his human nature from her. All right, so why must the mediator be man? I asked why he must be God. We've seen that he's man. Why must he be man? Yeah, that's good. So, so as sinful men, we need a man as a substitute. Right? That's great. Federal head. Federal head? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, he must be a man to be the federal head of men made in the image of God. Pastor Nathan? Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. That's it. Um, so, first of all, like you've said, as man, he fully satisfies the wrath of God. Right, he, his perfect obedient sacrifice and current intercession for us, right, are done on behalf of the human elect. But also, as man, he fully secures all of our redemption. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. So, if he merely appeared to be man, docetism, again, if you want to know more about that, we just talked about that in the creeds. If he merely appeared to be man, well, we merely appear to be saved, Right? If he only had a human body, right? So Apollinarianism in the early church said, ah, he just had a human body, but not a human soul, right? Well, only our bodies are saved. Our soul isn't saved. So the mediator must be very man, not just in part man. He must be very man because whatever he's not in his humanity is not saved of us. All right, so two natures in one person. Uh, this, chat, this paragraph ends so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ. Again, the language here is amazingly creedal. Uh, this is chalcedon, almost to a T. Um, we are not in a vacuum, theologically. So without conversion... Um, is very important. So the natures do not cause a change in one another. Right? Christ is God and man. He doesn't have to give up some of his divinity to be man, right? But also, his human nature doesn't have to rise above, right? Become some ultimate created being that's different than humanity. It still has all of the infirmities that the human nature does, right? So they don't convert, they don't change. Also without confusion or composition, Ranahan says that these are synonymous, they're used to emphasize the fact uh, that natures do not overtake one another. Christ is God and man. Right? The divinity doesn't swallow the humanity or vice versa. And again, there's so much going on here in the early church. I point you to our previous study in the creeds. 
Finally, in one person. The natures do not create two people, right? As Nestorius taught. Christ, Christ, the one person, is God and man. So, again, why does that matter? Why must we say that he is God and man? That there is one person, not just, just two people, right? Or, or that is, he's just divine, but he's God and man. And we've already talked about this, right? To mediate the grace of God to us as man in order to satisfy God's wrath, but also to offer perfection in that mediation as God. And all of this is done by one person. So a human nature doesn't die for you, right? A a divine nature is not what resurrects you to glory. A person, right? A whole person. And all of this is done by one person in two natures, to fulfill the stipulations of the covenant of redemption. So we always come back to that. Now, paragraph 7 offers a necessary clarification. So we did 1, 2, 3. We're skipping to 7. We'll come back to 4. But I'm addressing 7 because it applies to the two natures. So we really need to talk about this. Uh, Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures. By each nature doing what is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature, is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. It's a pretty complicated little paragraph here. Ultimately what this is saying is that what is said of one nature, right, that the human nature suffered, right, so Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures by each nature doing what is proper to itself. It is proper for the human nature to suffer, right? But we cannot say that the divine nature suffers. We can't say that. Because the divine nature does not suffer. God does not suffer. Right? He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get hungry. Um, yet, by, unity, by reason of the unity of the person, so in the fact that these are in one person, that which is proper of one nature, right, that the human nature hungered, is attributed to the person denominated by the other nature in Scripture. A great example of this uh, is Acts 20, 28, where Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he says that they are over the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We can't say, right? Can we say that God bled? Right? You see how that that, that would create so many issues. And so what the confession is wanting to uphold here is that sometimes scripture speaks of Christ and his human nature but denominates him or identifies him with the divine nature in that speaking. So why is this important, Pastor Nathan? <laughs> I'm thinking of, uh, well, there's many scriptures that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he learned obedience yep. while he suffered. God doesn't learn anything. God yep. doesn't have to learn obedience. Yep. He grew in wisdom and stature, uh, the Gospel of Luke. Yep. Um, in favor with man, uh, Acts also speaks of God dying and seeing uh, our maker dying yeah. and things of that nature. So, um, why why is it important? What to because of how Scripture speaks of that, but to uphold, of course, His divinity yeah. without confusing it with His humanity. Right. Yeah, and recognizing that. Like the confession says, sometimes we can speak of that and it still be true, 
Yeah. We're not saying those things are essential to God as God. God, right. Because God doesn't die, he doesn't yeah. grow in wisdom, he doesn't change. So yeah. we're upholding the divinity and the godness of Christ. Yep. Um, and yet still recognizing that it was joined with his human nature and yeah. attributing some things to his human nature to his person as divine. Yeah, a great verse for that is, you know, Christ says, I, he, he doesn't know the time or the hour, right, of the second coming, right, so to say. He doesn't know the time or the hour of the end. Well, can we say that God doesn't know things? Who's being denominated there in that verse? Can we apply what is said by Christ to both natures? No. But it's applied to his person. Right? But we must say that he is speaking there of his human nature, that he grows in knowledge. There are things that he doesn't know. There are things that you know, he grows in, uh, in obedience, like Pastor Nathan is saying. So it guards us against heresy. This is, uh, it's interesting here, the connection between Christology, so the doctrine of Christ, and hermeneutics, right? our doctrine of interpretation. And right here in the middle of our chapter on Christology, we have a paragraph on hermeneutics. That should key all of us into how are we reading scripture? And does it matter for our doctrine of God and our doctrine of Christ? Not just what does scripture say, but how do we read it? Rob? And this, this leads uh, many to try to assume that God is mutable, yep. that God is not sovereign, Absolutely. that God doesn't know the future, yep. open theism, all yep. these kinds of things. Yeah, they read that verse back into God and it just wreaks havoc. Out the door. Absolutely. Um, God, okay, so there are things that God doesn't know. That's scary. Does he know me? Does he know you? Does he know where you're going to be at the end of days? I hope so. Um, any questions on that? I don't have a lot of time. I've got to like, do this really quick. we got left. We don't have a lot left. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So there's an element of faith here because Jesus is the only person throughout all history that we can apply this to. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, one of the reasons I love studying Christology is it's so humbling. Because you're just constantly confronted with the, the lack that we have to, to, to fully understand and fully grasp these things. Um, and so. It, I would almost say it's good um, that you read things like this and read things like this and you struggle, right? Not that they aren't clear, right? Not that they aren't true, things like that, but that they are humbling. Right? We're talking about a God who transcends us, not one that we've made in our image, right? But one who's made us in his. Yep, Sam? Yeah. But by God's grace, we'll be able to apprehend Yes, absolutely. Never be able to comprehend by reason, but by God's grace and in faith, apprehending what the scriptures teach. Right? It's not a cop out, that's faith. All right, so two, this is really quick. 
the suitability of the mediator, Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. To the end, that being wholly harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took, now we're back to the covenant of redemption, upon himself, uh, not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. What are we talking about here? Uh, the Holy Spirit makes Christ suitable for the work of mediation. Now again, we're back to the Trinity. Right? The Father has sent the Son. The Son is accomplishing redemption. And even in accomplishing redemption, the Spirit is at work. Right? From his conception, right, we see the Spirit overshadowing Mary, to his baptism, to his growth in knowledge, to his resurrection, to sustaining him in his suffering, Christ executes the office of a mediator by and through being made suitable by the Holy Spirit. Jim Renahan points out that uh, this is no denial of Christ's deity, right, but rather an affirmation of the method through which the Holy Spirit worked in his human life. This is important because Christ is the surety, the guarantor of the covenant, not you, right? And Christ is made so. He alone is the mediator of this covenant and is made so by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit in his earthly life. It's God who makes him suitable in his human work, in his human nature. So even this is the work of the triune God. And this is the same Spirit who's at work in you as well, right? The Spirit who made Christ suitable to mediate the covenant of grace now is at work in you to cultivate holiness, right? To preserve you, to grant you assurance through the means of grace. And then finally, this is very last, I promise, uh, the exclusivity of the mediator. So paragraph nine. So all that we've studied today, his divinity, his humanity, how, how his divinity and humanity are in one person, right? All that we've studied today, the confession says, the office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. See that next week. And may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. First Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So this brings out that practicality. All the things we've talked about is what sets Christ as the sole mediator of the covenant of grace. So in closing, you know, I began by asking how do we fashion false Christ? I'll close with asking this. How are we, Christians, sitting in the pew today, tempted to transfer Christ's mediation, even any part thereof, to another. Yeah? That's Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine. Yep. That's it. Yeah. Co-redemptions. Yep. Mary is co-redeemer with Christ. Um, absolutely. Or just the church in general. Right? Uh, that the Catholic church, the Pope, as the vicar of Christ... Um, prayers to the saints. Um, I, I can mediate between my 
That's it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I get in trouble, but I mean, don't we all have a little bit of Roman Catholic in us? Aren't we all tempted to look to our own works at some point and say, well, you know what? I read my Bible this morning. You know, or I prayed really hard yesterday, so I'm feeling better. I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, you know, about where I am with God. Um, or when we fall horrendously, right? Um, we're just like, oh, I just got to try harder. You know, Jacob? Yeah, building off that, um, reminds the story of Cain and Abel, right? Um, Cain uh, brings before uh, God um, kind of the fruit of his own soil. Yep. Um, whereas Abel brings the, the blood of another. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Been reading Horton. Yeah, go ahead. I think that's called filthy rags. Filthy rags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our good works. Filthy rags. Um, yeah, not Jesus. Um, all right, so that's all I've got. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord God, we just thank you for Christ. Um, God, that... Uh, we were chosen before the foundations of the world to be a spotless bride given to the Son at the end of the ages. And so, God, we praise you and give glory to you alone for sending the Son to accomplish our redemption to the fullest extent. God, we pray today, through the means of grace, through the preaching of your word, that we would be reminded once again that there is no other mediator between God and man. No part of us, Lord, that we could stand before you and be right, but Christ alone. Remind us again and again, and in doing so, grant us patience towards one another. Grant us greater faith in you. And Lord, nurture within us a love for the church of God, the elect bride of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.